0: Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate.
1: And I'm Andrea.
0: This is a podcast where we read things and then we talk about them. Also, she's my mom, and I'm not, I'm not anybody's mom, surprisingly enough. <laughs> uh, but we did read a comic book for this episode. It's Volume 2 of the Saga of the Swamp Thing. The second part in our Alan Moore Swamp Thing series. Uh, covering issues 28 through 34. And also Swamp Thing Annual Number 2.
1: This is a super weird volume. So for a th- lot of reasons.
0: This vo- so issues 28 through 31 plus the annual... Are all one story uh, dealing with? Well, I guess you could actually say twenty nine through thirty one plus the annual is one story dealing with uh, the ramifications of Matt Cable's deal with this mysterious fly entity that you know. Spoiler alert: it's Anton Arcane uh, that happened in the previous volume. Issue 28 isn't necessarily part of the storyline, but it's thematically connected to it, dealing with death and the afterlife, which will be a major theme in this other story. And then we get issue 32, which is a one-off ecological fable and homage to a classic comic strip. We get 33, which is a reprint of an issue from the 70s with a new framing device that connects it to the broader Swamp Thing mythology that more is developing. And then we get a, what is essentially an issue-long sex scene slash drug trip that sort of culminates this phase of Abby and Swamp Thing's relationship that's been developing since, uh, well, since, I guess, the issue after the anatomy lesson, really. This is the first time we really see her interact with Swamp Thing.
1: Well, I saw kind of this, I mean, I saw the plot the way exactly as you described it, but I think that, I thought that the burial, the first one was sort of like, Alan Moore like finally putting to rest the sort of, the scientific technology plot that was happening before he took over, and then him really coming into like his own horror, supernatural fantasy element that, so then when... So, like, the arcane storyline with Matthew and Abby is sort of that bridge. And then when you get to the final issue and it's the psychedelic love trip, then you realize, like, this is the new Swamp Thing. And it's fully, like, Alan Moore's vision of what the Swamp Thing is. And even, like, that bridge, that reprint issue, sort of becomes like a nod to him saying, like, okay, this is the old swamp thing, and this is now my new vision of what is going to happen. Yeah. I mean, there's even a part where he says, like, I am the swamp thing, you know, and I am in power. So he has that quote that that says, like, you know, this is no longer that sort of drippy, you know, environmental, floral swamp thing from the 70s. I mean,
0: no, this is more, a much drippier, more floral and environmental swamp thing. Than we got in the seventies. I think this is more of him breaking with the, like, you know, this is not a, this is no longer a story about a character that's looking to the past, right? Which is what the older Swamp Thing was. That was a guy who was haunted by the fact that he was Alec Holland and was trying to deal with that. And this is a Swamp Thing that is about the future. He's not connected. He is not, he is fully not Alec Holland. Alec Holland is literally laid to rest at the beginning of this story. And now we get to deal with, like, new stuff. And it's the same thing. Like, this this Arcane storyline is, like, the last ghost of the past. It's It lays to rest his last supporting character that's not Abby from the original series. He finally defeats his arch nemesis for good. And now we get to move on to, like, what the future of this book and the future of this character is going to be.
1: I thought yeah I think also this is the point where Alan Moore steps out of the classic gross out horror techniques and moves into like a more sophisticated psychological um horror.
0: But we get some real gross out horror though before that.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. This is him like saying like I was like okay, a last. Yeah.
0: Like blast of it. So let's start with issue 28. I guess this is called The Burial. This is just beautiful. I love this. This is one of my favorite sort of single-issue stories in comics. And basically what happens in it, so Sean McManus does the art in this one, which is a, it's a very different feel from the uh, Toddleman and Bissette stuff, which is much sort of shaggier, more abstract with, with uh, weirder panels. These are more sort of standard rectangular panels. The art is sort of cleaner. It's very detailed, but like strong, clean lines with like thick blacks. It and
1: really it, puts me in mind of some of the artwork from Sam Mann. Well,
0: Sean McManus did some stuff with yeah. Sam Mann, I'm pretty sure. So, yeah, that would make sense. And this story... Uh, what happens in this is uh, Swamp Thing's hanging out with Abby. Uh, we get some hints at where the plot is going to go, because she talks about uh, Matt coming out of, you know, surviving the car accident and being kind of different. And then... She calls him Alec, which he does not like. He has a very negative reaction to it. And then he sees the spirit of Alec Holland. And so Swamp Thing is being haunted by the ghost of the man that he thought he was, which guides him to the place where that man died. Uh, he gets visions of the past. And then he exhumes he Holland's bones and lays them to rest, using a piece of his own body as grave marker, and then sending Holland on his way to heaven.
1: I think it's interesting, because this is almost... Th- This is like the third variation of what actually happened to Alec Holland. So like, you know, as the story progresses and they talk about the explosion, this is like the third version of what actually happens in the explosion.
0: Yeah. So what we found out is the explosion happens. He doesn't become swamp thing, but he does become a ghost who is bound to the swamp because of the violent way that he died and is unable to move on because essentially Swamp Thing runs around thinking he's his ghost. And now that that connection has been severed, this last connection he has to the material plane, his bones, which have not been laid to rest, needs to be dealt with.
1: I think it's so beautiful, though, the the, the artwork where he, you know, he he interacts with the ghost and then he finds the bones and then that whole sort of very visual with not a lot of text going on where he he's like in the process of burying the skeleton i think it's really sort of heartfelt the way that it's done
0: and it reframes the um the dream sequence from the first volume where he's carrying around his humanity and it's like this dark and tragic thing where this becomes this sort of beautiful it's the same imagery of swamp thing with the skeleton of alec holland but now it's this like beautiful cathartic moment of like grace and tranquility i also think there's a really nice trick where at one point the spirit of alec holland takes on the appearance of swamp thing but it's the pre anatomy lesson swamp thing it's this like smoother more trying to look human swamp thing we see it contrasted with the post anatomy lesson sort of shaggy uh more mossy swamp thing that we get throughout the you know the rest of this story which really like highlights like how much he has really grown and changed as a person since learning he w- was an Alan Holland.
1: Yeah, I think it's really like sort of it's like a nice tribute, and it's it's sort of also solidifies the opinion that I had that this is sort of putting to rest the old traditional, um, well known Swamp Thing and starting to show this sort of new avant garde style of what's going to happen once Elmore is fully in his fruition of what he thinks that, you know, his vision of Swamp Thing. We talked about this a lot with Sandman, that there's that sort of transition when Neil Gaiman finally fully comes into his own and owns the characters in Sandman and he starts to create his own narrative. And I think it happens a lot faster in Sandman because you can see now, you know, the style that Elmore has his, his, not his love of like the DC characters that already exist. You start to see that come into the story where he fully takes helm and he takes ownership of the character.
0: Yeah. What did you make of um his captions in this? Because one of the things that I really love about Alan Moore, but specifically about Swamp Thing, is his captions are really poetic. I think they're like his use of language is like maybe his greatest strength as a writer, and he fills these caption boxes, especially Swamp Thing's internal monologue, with all of this like really beautiful like pastoral poetry. Swamp Thing almost thinks like Walt Whitman.
1: That's why I think it's like Swamp Thing is. He looks like a beast, mm-hmm. you know, but he. It's kind of like the opposite of Frankenstein. He looks like a beast, but he's an intelligent, thoughtful, empathic intellectual Yeah. you know so he looks like a monster is going to come in and smash but he's like you know this he is like Walt Whitman. he's a philosopher he's in tune with nature and i think it's really starting to show like that connection that they were making where swamp thing is linked to the green he's mm-hmm. linked to this sort of larger like ethereal community where he's you know i don't know what they call him the parliament of trees yeah well that,
0: that'll come up we, have, we don't have a name for them yet but we, we, we're we starting to get these ideas of, like, you know, it, it kind of connects to that idea of, like, the oversoul. Uh-huh. Um, but we get these really great captions in this where he's like, uh, and so I had to follow him, follow him through the luminous dusk, follow him along the brittle paths of autumn, through pools of cold water, follow him here, here where it began, still standing but barely, naked rooms, filthy with wet ash, soiled shreds of upholstery, its faded pattern once familiar, home. And then he go, goes directly into this vision of this, like, sort of quiet domestic moment between Alec and his wife, Linda. Which is good, because it, like, fleshes out, I mean, that relationship that that was, like, lost in the birth of Swamp Thing. And, you know, it kind of gives you a little glimpse of why he would try so desperately to hold on to these memories that weren't even really his.
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, also in the part where... Swamp Thing is diving down into the swamp to get Alex's bones, and he's talking about his mind. It's almost like Swamp Thing has realized that, like, the best parts that he got from Alec is his intellect. Yeah. No, it's a really thoughtful way of saying that he is not a monster, that he is, you know, a high-level thinking intellectual.
0: This is also, this issue is the answer to the question, right? Like, we talked a little bit in the previous volume about the, the Swamp Man thought experiment. Like, the lightning hits the swamp and creates a being that has exactly your memories. But is it you? And this issue is pretty definitive. like, no. It's not you. It's a different person. You're you. I mean, this is as Alan Moore is laying out a cosmology where, the like, the soul is very much, like, a real thing.
1: Yeah, and I think that it's, I mean, it's. Even more clear when you learn that he comes from a long history of swamp creatures Mm -hmm. who are created almost not exactly the same way, but they're created at a time when the earth needs some type of ecological hero or, you know, someone who can speak for nature in a way that's relatable to, like, humans. Uh, I guess the last
0: thing I wanted to ask about your take on this issue is do you see any sort of like a father-son thing here with the swamp thing in Alec Holland? Is this like a story of a son laying his father to rest?
1: I I guess it could be seen as that, but I kind of see it as him laying to rest the baggage that he was carrying with that like internal struggle of is he a man or is he a monster? Is he Alec or is he his own self? And I feel like he is himself, and in a lot of ways, laying to rest the sort of uh, previous manifestations of the swamp thing.
0: Yeah, I totally, uh, yeah, that makes sense. So after that uh, serene, beautiful issue about, you know, coming to terms and to peace with the past, uh, we get a deeply upsetting issue about the past coming back to haunt and destroy you.
1: Well, I think this is the this is the part where he was like, "Okay, we laid that to rest. Now we got to deal with yeah. Matthew and Abby, and because she can't technically be with Swamp Thing until she lays to rest her own problems, yeah. which is which is Matthew. I mean, Matthew is a very complicated problem yeah. that both of them have to deal with.
0: And I think this is also where this book really." I think this is where the book really comes in it on its own because this is where it sort of makes it clear that while the book is called Swamp Thing, this story that Alan Moore is telling is about Swamp Thing and Abby. She is just as important as he is. So why, now that he has dealt with – like you said, now that he has dealt with his past, she asked you. So this, this is issue uh, 29. It's called Love and Death. Uh, the art is by Stephen Bissett and John toddleman, who are like the regular artists. We're going to see them the most. We're back to that sort of, like, shaggy, um, unkempt style with the weird panels deforming. The way they draw Swamp Thing is so good. Like, the second page of this is just, like, a full-page shot of him from the legs up in the swamp telling Abby that she can call him Alec if it's easier because he's come to terms with Alec. He's okay with using that name. And he's just, like, so, like... He's so dense with details, like there's just like little, you know, little roots and, and flowers coming off of him. Uh, a big thing in this, this volume in particular, is that the seasons are changing, and he is, he changes with them. He's right. in tune with the seasons now. So he becomes, you know, he gets brown and orange in the fall, and blossoms bloom on him in the spring, and... uh
1: yeah, this is clearly a summer time. I mean, you see the little frogs and, you know, he's very lush.
0: Uh, so, man, big big time trigger warning on this one. Because this is a story about abuse. I think it's a really nice... Not nice. It's a very effective uh, use of the fantastic and the grotesque in this story to kind of... He takes... Almore takes uh, this character, which you know, Anton Arcane with the powers of Matthew Cable and uses it to show the like really frightening way that an abuser can sort of warp reality around them using things like gaslighting and and various kinds of like mental abuse.
1: I think though, I mean, it it is a story of abuse, but there's two abusers. There's her uncle who she has a history. He Mm -hmm. has a, and he's much more sinister and dangerous. But then she also has this sort of abusive relationship with Matthew.
0: Yeah, whereas Matthew's abuse is a much more sort of benign, neglectful, selfish abuse. Arcane is like this cruel... I mean, he's so cruel that by the, the next issue he has become like a dark god. And yes. they don't really go into too many specifics. There's a lot yeah. of implication. She's She's like... There's this whole thing with her feeling, like, tainted and dirty, and there's um, there's one interpretation where it's, like, she feels tainted and dirty because she has in her veins the same blood as Arcane, who is so evil, but then there's also, like, maybe she feels tainted and dirty because of the things he did to her.
1: Yeah, and I think she needs to heal herself. Part of the problem that I... One of the concerns I had about Abby in this series is... Is she constantly going to be a damsel in distress? And this this story starts out like, yes. And then as as it goes on and she starts to come into her own, then you realize she's not a damsel in distress and Swamp Thing isn't always saving her. Like, she needs saving because she's in a bad situation. But once she gets out of that bad situation, she, in essence, heals herself and empowers herself. So then going forward, they're equals.
0: I think we get a little glimpse of her, uh, you know, in the Monkey King storyline, in the previous one, she takes a lot of agency Mm -hmm. in that. I mean, I think the idea, which I really like, that more gets at with her is, like, she's strong, but, like, she's a person. She's strong in, like, a specific way, in that she's, like, an empathic healer, and she's, like, a, like, she has, like, you know, agency, but she can't fist fight a demon, because she's just a person. And Swamp Thing can do that because he's Swamp Thing. So when a demon needs to get punched, he steps in to do the punching.
1: I also think, like, the way that she was depicted before Almore starts to write the series, she is a damsel. Yeah. And she needs to be saved. So this is also that sort of finishing up that sort of 70s expectation of, like, you know, a weak little female and a strong, powerful man kind of thing where Swamp Thing has to save her. Yes, he does save her. Mm -hmm. But she also saves him a lot of times when he's, like, in an emotional state. She was very helpful when he was going through his transformation in the previous volume. Yeah,
0: and we'll see more and more of her. I think Abby's a really good character. I think what the idea with her is that she's sort of like... She is... She's kind of like the the protagonist of like a gothic romance novel, but in the modern day. And it's like uh, the good things about that character without a lot of the like crummy, like weak, frail baggage attached to it.
1: I think you're right, though, because one of the things that I recognized in this volume is that a lot of the ways that the story is sort of told out is almost like a classic gothic horror story Mm -hmm. you know there's the sort of like foreshadowing where she's in the library and she sees the book. you know so there's all these kind of like tricks that you would do in a horror movie where you would you know you know you're like oh no Abby don't go in there you know whatever's going to happen like you start to see like sort of clues that link you in and get you like hooked into the story you know you know like you know she's in quotes happy with Matthew after the accident, but then she starts to see like a little cracks and and then you get clues and you're kind of like you figure out what's going on before Abby does. So it's yeah. kind of like a horror movie where you're like, no Abby, don't go in there or, like you know what's gonna happen.
0: I mean I said it before, I think like Al Moore's handle on pacing in this and, and also Toddman and Beset in the way they paste individual pages is like really tight and really well done. So so what happens in this issue is uh, Matt is, he's miraculously healed from his car accident. He's so apparently sober again. He seems to have his shit together. He's gotten a new job. He bought them a house. But everything is off. There's a weird smell that's haunting them. Uh, something, we, we begin in media res and Abby is already sort of like in this, uh, sort of wrecked state and she's reflecting back on the things that happened and she's sort of retreated into this, um, Safety mechanism of viewing this stuff as dreams when it's pretty clear that all this happened. So she, like, has a moment with Swamp Thing where he sort of expresses this, like, feeling of unity that he has now with himself. And he lets her call him Alec because, like, if she doesn't want to call him Swamp Thing, she doesn't have to call him Swamp Thing. It's not really a name. Um, And uh, it turns out that all the people that Alec works with are dead serial killers. And she goes to the library. She finds the first indication of that. And then it just becomes more and more clear that he is possessed by Arcane, who has become this, like, elemental force of evil and decay and just this, like, avatar of everything wrong in the world. And then he, like, fully lets it loose and, uh, you know, traps her in the house with him and all of his revenants.
1: Well, I think it's interesting because, like, in the beginning where she's telling us this sort of... Uh, flashback where she's showing the house at Matthew, you see like it's nice and beautiful out and you see these little butterflies and then as she starts to put it together you start to see sort of like more um, sinister, more um, like the insects that are portrayed are like more like the kind of insects that like eat like... Carrion. Yeah, carrying stuff like that. There's lots of scorpions and beetles and stuff like that so you start to see like you know there's like decay going on and you start to sort of visually put together what's happening
0: there's also this like there's this recurring visual like um parallel going on where swamp thing finds this bird that Mm -hmm. is like seems to be weak and grounded and when he goes to help it because he's like this gentle loving soul It turns out the bird is dead and what he thought was movement was the insects inside the bird eating it being like Matt is dead and Anton is moving his body.
1: And then I think you also start to realize that, well, you're not quite sure that Matthew is dead at this point, but you start to realize that Arcane is in his body, but that Arcane is also now using Matthew's power. So you start to see like there's all these sort of. Um, montages of like weird things that are changing the scope of reality and you start to see stuff about the serial killers and you start to see more of the, like more sinister depictions of the insects. And this is, I think this, I wasn't quite sure if what Swamp Thing saw when he saw that bird that he thought was alive was sort of that ripple of, like, the effect of Arcane using Matthew's power.
0: It could be that. I feel like it could have also been, like, the Earth sending him a warning. Like, hey, you know, this is, you should need to deal with this problem. Uh,
1: But I thought it was interesting visually when when Abby starts to put together that at first she doesn't know, she knows that something is wrong with Matthew, but she does not know what it is. But as she starts to figure it out, the colors and the style starts to change. So by the time you get to the point where she's fully aware that he's Arcane, Matthew is now almost depicted in the style that Arcane was depicted in the previous issues. Yeah, so he now you see more reds and yellows and browns. And then you start to see like these close-up panels that are just really like almost like the shining, like really sinister, like close up panels of like Matthew's face, and you can see that it is changing and he's almost starting to look more like how arcane looked.
0: What, who does he look like in this? Cuz he, he looks like an actor. He looks it, like Dexter. He does. I was thinking um oh, what's his name? The uh he's in he's in uh Aliens Lance Henriksen.
1: Yeah, maybe. But I thought, like, I don't know if it's just the facial expressions and the way that it's framed. Mm-hmm. It really reminds me of, like, some of the close-up face shots that they used to do in Dexter. Well,
0: there's, like, there are some panels where he's clearly drawn to look like like Matthew Cable. Like a, like a rugged, handsome, square-jawed American hero, but with this sinister air around him. And then there's some uh, panels where it's almost like his grotesque smile... It's, like, too big for his face. Matthew Cable shouldn't be able to smile like that, so it's, like, stretching his face and features, which is, like, obviously later on that grows and grows until uh, it starts to more directly recall Arcane. I do really like the color thing where Arcane is, like, all of these harsh reds and yellows, and then Swamp Thing is, like, this soft pastoral green. Issue 30 is, like, the really, I think is the really heavy one. This is A Halo of Flies, and the art is uh, Stephen Bissett and Alfredo Alcala?
1: Uh, this is almost, I mean, it really dips into that sort of gross-out horror. There's, there's, and it's really good at using this sort of innovative panel style. Like, one of the pages is a full panel, and you see, like, this horrifying monster bug, and then you see these small panels that are, like, interlaid. Within it, so you kind of get this sort of giant scale of, like, gothic horror, but then this also, like, tiny little tight feeling of, like, psychological terror as well.
0: Yeah, so... And then, like, the panels, like, start to clump together, and, like, there's this idea that, like, the weight of what's happening on the page is deforming the page itself, which is really cool. Uh, So what's happening in this one is the returned man, which is the... What Moore starts calling this like ascended arcane cable gestalt?
1: Oh yeah, because yes. he's fully he's fully arcane in Matthew's body. Yeah, he's not even pretending. And this is also when you start to see that how powerful he has become because he has his own powers fully manifested, and then he's also using his powers to enhance Matthew's power. And Matthew has... How did Matthew get his powers? He just
0: had like a brain accident. He just got brain damage and it gave him psychic powers. It's, it was never super clear. I think like the thing that will eventually be the explanation is he was a meta human, and the trauma of his accident activated his powers. Right now it's just like, uh, I don't know, sometimes your brain gets messed up in a way that gives you psychic god
1: powers. Because he also... I mean, he has this sort of... And this is, I think, one of the reasons why Arcane is so dismissive of Matthew to begin with. He's very
0: mean to Matthew. He
1: has this power that he's underusing. He's just using it for his own entertainment. Yeah. Like, you see that in in book one. He kind of manifests some sexy visions and stuff like that. But he's not fully using it to, like, to what Arcane thinks is, like, the standard that he should be using it. So yeah. then when Arcane takes it over, you start to see these sort of ripples coming out of the swamp where it's impacting, like, reality in different cities. And you start to see, like, people acting in a strange way because they, they're they coming under the influence of Arcane using Matthew's reality warping power You're sort
0: of pulling the darkness out of people's hearts and and nudging people to do things more sort of cruel and violent than they would initially. And there's just, like, these ripples of darkness coming out of arcane because he's just so evil and so powerful and he's deforming the world around him and it's like that thing i said about like the abuser warping reality but taken to such an extreme that he becomes like like i said like a dark god he's like literal satan at this point and he's his just presence in the world is making the world a worse place
1: i think it's also i mean it's you also learn at this point that Arcane, for whatever reason he was doing this, he had orchestrated the Monkey King incident at the home for the children. Yeah, I think specifically to lure Abby L for some reason, or t- so somehow with some machinations to create this sort of
0: I think context
1: it- where Abby is dealing with the Monkey King. So that Arcane can set up his ultimate plan, which is to get Matthew to agree to let him occupy his body, possess his body.
0: Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So he's. I mean, basically everything except for the Sunderland stuff that has happened so far has been engineered by Arcane, who he 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 dies in uh, the issue before a Loose Ends, and is sent to hell. And then, or not even to Hell, to like this sort of, that sort of uh, in-between world, to the cobwebbed lands, is what he calls it, the dismal region of the bodiless men. Because he's, he's not even really alive, when he dies, he's not even really alive still, so he doesn't actually get to go to the actual afterlife. And through sheer force of will, his bodiless spirit returns to Earth, and he he does all the bad shit uh that he we know that he did. And uh the other thing that happens in this issue is I assume this is one of your questions, we get our first glimpse of the monitor. Yeah. Okay, so the monitor is a weird thing. Every so often in uh in comics, a character will show up and in an interview the creator will say something like, Oh, this is a character that I've had, you know, in my notebook since I was a kid. And you can kind of tell usually, because that character will be sort of a ripoff of a pre-existing character. The Monitor is one of those, because the Monitor is definitely not, and is totally legally distinct from Marvel's The Watcher. <laughs> but, so, the reason this character's here is, I think we've mentioned a couple times, Crisis on Infinite Earths. Right. There's a big crossover where D- between all the DC books, where they shut down their multiverse and rebooted everything. And, and most characters just sort of carried over into the new universe, with the same sort of past.
1: Is this being written at the same time?
0: It's coming up. It's coming up. Um, so the Monitor is a major character in that. And as a way to hype up Crisis on Infinite Earths. They had him make cameos in a bunch of books. And so that's what's going on here. And Moore just kind of uses the Monitor. who's like this cosmic being that observes the universe. And then the villain of Crisis on Infinite Earths is his, like, antimatter counterpart. That destroys worlds instead of just watching them. And So Moore kind of uses him in the here in the same way that he used the Justice League in the Woodrue story which is here's this character with a higher perspective that we can use to establish the scale of the conflict that's happening lower down in the book. And so he's just kind of like in space watching. Uh and that that's pretty much all there is to the monitor. I for, totally forgot this was in here and when you were before we recorded you were like, "Oh, I got a bunch of questions." And I was like, "Oh yeah, the monitor shows up i completely yeah of course you would have questions
1: about that yeah it just seems weird but also you see like in the picture you start to, you can see like the specter is in there
0: yeah uh because they're, they're they're trying to figure out what is causing it they reference the specter who shows up there right below him is trigon the demon who is the father of raven from the teen titans that's what that character is uh that they reference briefly i don't know if, i don't think he ever shows up in swamp thing
1: I thought it was interesting because it's kind of like, it's the same thing. Like there's all this weird stuff going on. And it's impacting people who have nothing to do with Swamp Thing and, and mm-hmm. Arcane. And then the monitor's like, oh, there's such a big disturbance. And then it cuts to like Arkham and you see like the Floronic Man. And then you see this really great like image of like the Joker. Who
0: stopped laughing, <laughs> uh, which is, is a nice little touch. Yeah, the flying man is freaking the fuck out, and the Joker has apparently been rendered catatonic. Even he, this presence of evil is too much even for him.
1: Well, and yeah, and then the issue ends with, like, Matthew slash Arcane with no shirt and no shoes, but, like, these, like, very 70s Bruce Banner uh, dungarees on, jumping out of a window and walking into the swamp, and the snow starts to fall, and then you're like... His okay. eyes are
0: completely white, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah, the snow is falling. Now it's winter. Um, we get a win- shot of winter Swamp Thing. And uh, he's basically lured back to the house by Arcane, uh, who wants to have one last clumsy waltz with his arch And when Swamp Thing arrives, he finds that Abby is uh, dead. And Arcane cackles at him as Swamp Thing carries her, you know, body down the stairs. And it's this, like, nice little... Um, You know, it's like classic monster imagery. It's a monster with the the beautiful uh, bride in his arms, but it's he's not the monster in this scenario. He's the hero, and the the monster is the handsome guy who's cackling at him.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, it's it's very. I mean, the whole sequence is done very visually, which is you know part of the beauty of it.
0: Yeah, I think uh, Akala lends a sort of it's. uh, uh, it's uh, his his contributions tighten up the art a little bit more than um uh does there's a lot of like heavy cross hatching this has a very sort of um almost like there's like black like black and white and like magazine comics sort of feel to it like it's a like very like Heavy on the shadows and stuff, which I think is fitting for this issue that's about, like, this malevolent force weighing down on the world.
1: Yeah, and I think it, I mean, it's done, re- like, the tension is really created very well with these sort of small panels that are close-ups of the of each of their faces. And then sort of this big um, panel of them, like, fighting or getting prepared to fight. You see Arcane, like, hovering over Swamp Thing, like he's mm-hmm. right about to attack. And then, you know, he's mocking him and sort of trying to fire him up for some kind of, like, conflict.
0: Yeah, and that's, like, the thing. Like, he wants a a fight. He wants a superhero, you know, hero versus villain fight. And Swamp Thing is, like, beyond that at this point. But he is willing to indulge him once he realizes what he's done to Abby. Uh, Also, I want to say, underrated... uh, Or... I think it is underrated how disturbing someone flying can be. Like this story gets it. Like the witch that movie gets it. Like right. contextless, a person floating through the air is kind of an a unsettling and disturbing image. Well, and I really like when people mind that. For
1: I think it's also a good counterpoint for Swamp Thing, who is earth bound. Yeah. He's an earth elemental, so he's you know connected to the physical earth. And then sort of shows, like, Arcane and his, like, unhinged glory. And then you see, like, all these flies and these sort of predatory insects that really don't look like they belong in nature. They look Mm. like they're created. Well, yeah. Like Hieronymus Bosch or, like, these kind of weird, misshapen monster bugs that follow Arcane around.
0: Well, yeah. As the story progresses, the... the bugs around him do become less and less naturalistic like in the beginning it's just flies and then he's got like a giant centipede crawling on his back as he's like floating above the woods at one point
1: yeah and i think that's sort of a strategic choice to sort of show that arcane is sort of this perversion of what is natural at this point he's completely um unnatural yeah and even when you go to the cover of the next one you can see these sort of demon monsters that are like flying with arcane as he's hunched over swamp thing Mm -hmm. who is like carrying this like um unconscious body of abby and she's in this long yellow dress with her white hair Mm -hmm. flowing and i guess they really do address the fact that like between book one and book two, she completely goes gray. Yeah, you know she loses her long, beautiful blonde hair and has now has this sort of white hair with the shock of black. It's
0: it's what it is. Is it's uh, it's reverse colored, uh, Bride of Frankenstein hair. Yeah, but like down in uh-huh. like, a, like a this sort of flowy uh, style. Um, so the next issue. Issue 31, is called Brimstone Ballet, The Brimstone Ballet. And the art is by Rick Veach and John Tottlepin. And Veach, I don't know if this is the first time they worked together. I think they maybe worked together in England. But Veach will become a longtime Alan Moore collaborator. And the thing about that is, and the reason I think Alan Moore likes him so much. One, he's just really good. But also, Rick Veach, and we don't see it in this, necessarily. But Rick Veach is really good at drawing like other people. So, like, when Alan Moore wants to tell a story that's, like, a tribute to an older story, he can get Rick Veach to draw in that style.
1: Oh, well, that yeah, that's very handy, because he does call back a lot of different sort of styles.
0: Like, so, eventually, Alan Moore will, and Veach will do a book together called, like, called 1963. That's, like, a parody of classic Marvel comics, and Veach draws in the style of all the original Marvel artists. Uh, when Alan Moore does his Supreme series, which is, like, his... Uh, superman tribute slash deconstruction all the backup stories are drawn in the style of older comics and they're all drawn by rick veitch who does like impressions of classic supergirl art and like jim starlin's sort of 70s and 80s cosmic stuff yeah so this is i mean this issue is basically just swamp things fight with arcane and it's weird and brutal he throws up a bunch of uh bees on him and screams uh it's the apocalypse, my apocalypse. There's a really great part that I think underlines the thing you were saying about Arcane being this unnatural, perverse figure in reflection to Swamp Thing as this sort of natural, you know, elemental protector. He says, you did not have to kill her to teach me to spare Arcane. But you have given me a deeper understanding of abomination.
1: Yeah, and I think you can see it because as the fight goes on... He becomes more and more ghoul like.
0: Yeah, and the things around him just stop even looking like insects. They just become these like grotesque monstrosities.
1: I like this part because this this is the fully formed swamp thing. Yeah, I mean, he says, "I am the swamp thing. I'm of the clean earth. I am in my place of power," and then he just fully manifests his like swamp thing powers, and he just almost arcane. Well, yeah,
0: the the full speech is, you have made a mistake, arcane. Things have changed since you were dead. I am not Holland. I am Swamp Thing. I am of the clean earth. I am in my blaze of power. And then half of the page is just his roaring face. The the word balloon changes from orange to red and he says, you should not have come here. Yeah. And then he just punches him in the gut.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's like, and at that point, I mean, even like the next panel where you sort of You see, like, Arcane, and he's getting, like, like, Swamp Thing is, like, holding him, and you see, like, that sort of raven that almost looks like, like, a wing that's on the back of Arcane, and they're just, like, going at it, and then you're finally, like, and then, you know, like, Swamp Thing's had enough. He's just, he's done with this. There's
0: also this really great part, which gets back to the stuff we were saying before about laying the past to rest, where, um... Arcane says, uh, you have no magic unless some elemental force, but I have encountered you before. And Swamp Thing says, no, Arcane, you have never encountered me before. This is our first battle. And it's like, yeah, no, he's a different guy. And then he just kicks the shit out of him over the next page. And like the scale of the panels, the scale of Swamp Thing as a figure is like constantly shifting and changing. We see a lot of his like giant hands coming at yeah. us, the reader. It's really fucking cool.
1: But then there's also that like the page where he finally defeats him and the panels just get like smaller and Mm -hmm. then all you see is like the word no and it's just going through the whole page and then you just see Swamp Thing's hand and you're like okay he's he's had enough and that's when he like his last word on that page is Matt like a question like he realizes that Arcane has been banished and now Matthew has returned.
0: Yeah, Matthew regains – he uses the last of his power to banish Arcane to hell. Oh, we find out that Arcane has sent Abby to hell. Right. And that's, like, another – we in the first one, I was talking about how kind of the, one of the big, like, um, theses of this, this uh, comic is that what's – the world is monstrous. That, like, there's no real – like, unless a person or a being chooses to do it himself, there's no real karmic balance. You don't need to trespass in places you're not supposed to be to receive punishment. You can send... <laughs> Arcane can send an innocent soul to hell, and it is if she's going to come out, it's up to someone to go and rescue her. Yeah, and I think this... Arc And Matt tries to do that, and he cannot.
1: Right. I think this is, like, two things are happening at this point. This is Matthew's redemption. This is him using the last of his strength to put right both what Arcane has done and what Matthew has done to Abby. And then I think it's also the part where Swamp Thing fully moves into the supernatural because like we know, because you know, we know what's happening. We know that, you know, there's, um, Constantine is coming There's more involvement in, like, werewolves and different kind of supernatural entities. So it's moving into that story arc that's completely different from the previous manifestations. Yeah. So Matthew uses the last of his powers instead of saving himself, which is what Swamp Thing tells him to do, to bring Abby back from the dead. Mm -hmm. But he he can't bring her soul back, so... That's left for Swamp Thing to take care of.
0: There's Yeah, there's this really... This great, like, almost completely silent sequence where Abby's coming back to life and it's intercut with these panels of Matt's arm reaching out into the abyss to grab her and then she's just pulled away by these, like, tentacles. And then he he apologizes and he dies and there's this really, like, sad single panel of, like, a close-up on Swamp Thing's giant face and his, like, eyes are completely in shadow. Yeah,
1: because I think, I mean, even though he... He may see Matthew as a rival for Abby's affections, and he may not care about Matthew for the way that he behaves. I think he feels some sympathy for what has happened to Matthew. I
0: think it is almost almost even more complex than that, where I don't think, like, like yes, intellectually, right, Matthew is a rival for, Swamp, for Abby's affections. But I don't think, I don't even think Swamp Thing sees it like that. I don't think it occurs to him. Until she tells him later on in this volume, I don't think it even occurs to him that they could be together. And I think he still, despite all the awful things Matt has done, sees him as a friend and an ally. One of the few that he's had in his, you know, what we now know to be pretty short existence.
1: I think also Swamp Thing does a kindness to Matthew. Maybe. Maybe. Where he takes him to the road so that he can be found. The police find him and take him to the hospital, and he's in a coma. Yeah. But, I mean, he could have just left him in the swamp at that and he didn't. Well, yeah, yeah. He he, he goes off with Abby.
0: he's seen what happens when you leave a a person who died violently in the swamp. Like, knowing what we know about the burial, I think it really is an act of kindness that he, he takes him somewhere where people can find him. It doesn't leave him to haunt this place. And, uh... Yeah, and there's a really beautiful last page where, where Swamp Thing carries Abby off and the sun is setting over the swamp and it's all, like, white and blue and red. Um, do you think that this... So this moment with uh, Matthew dying... or Well, he's not officially dead, but, you, you know, he for all intents and purposes, he is. Uh, I think it's pretty affecting. Do you think it's more affecting knowing uh, what's going to happen with him later?
1: I think... Yeah, because I'm I while I was reading this, I kept seeing sort of all these like prequel signs of what's going to happen in the Sandman story. I mean, there's lots of. I mean, it's even heavy-handedly obvious that there's an influence from Almore Swamp Thing to Neil Gaiman Sandman. Mm-hmm. But I think knowing this sort of complicated. This kind, you know, this manifestation that Matthew goes through, mm-hmm. this sort of makes it easier to understand the problems that he was dealing with in Sandman. But it also, you know, full circle gives you a better understanding of how he came to manifest as the Raven.
0: Yeah. I also think it kind of knowing that he had these like powers and he struggled with this like dark entity, you miss using his own powers I think puts an interesting light on his relationship with dream where it's like, here's a guy who also has the power to like shape reality and to shape dreams and stuff, which is what, um, Matt was dealing with his powers and he doesn't use them the way that Matt did. He's like a stronger person than Matt was. And that makes sense that he would admire him as much as he does when he is the Raven.
1: Is Matthew fully out other than being in the background in the coma? Is he fully out of the storyline?
0: yeah I think that like the, he at some point his he does die like his body dies, but he doesn't he's not really like a character for the rest of the story. This is pretty much his end in Slum thing, and the next time he's an important character is when he shows up as the Raven and Sandman right um, so the next issue is annual number two uh do I need to explain what an annual is to people get
1: that? You can explain it to me.
0: Oh, it's just an extra issue that would be published once a year. Okay. Originally, they were used to put reprints in, and then they sort of became a place for uh, new material. Sometimes they're used, like in this, it's used to wrap up a big story, like with this big extra size issue. Uh, in some, a lot of instances, they'll be used to tell like uh, little anthologies or to have like a, a creative team that's not the main creative team come onto the book and tell one story with the character. That's all it really is. They basically just fill out the publishing schedule.
1: This is almost like a classic horror story. I mean, it's Swamp the- Thing goes down to hell to retrieve his beloved soul. And this is sort of like, almost like his Dante's Inferno, his journey that he has to go through. I'll tell you what's
0: in my notes. Uh, I have annual number two in the creative team, and then it basically just says Divine Swampity. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so this is called Down Among the Dead Men. It's this it's the um, standard art team. It's Beset and Toddleman uh, doing some amazing work. I think this is some of the best stuff they've done yet. And uh, yeah, it is. It's the it's the Descent of Orpheus. It's the Divine Comedy. This is a, this is Almore tapping into a very like you know classic tradition of myth and folklore. Swamp so Thing is the you know the demigod who has lost his love and he descends into the underworld to bring her back. Uh it's there's a cool thing where he goes sort of through the green yes. to get to the afterlife.
1: Yeah, I think that, that that's sort of what reminded me of uh Dante's Inferno because he has to go through these sort of layered um afterworld. Yeah. I mean even the green is almost like some type of afterworld. Yeah.
0: So, so he goes to purgatory or what is we understand to be purgatory. I don't think it's called that by name. He goes to heaven and then he goes to hell and he is guided in each of these places by a different character from DC Comics history. So the first one, the guy he meets in Purgatory is Dead Man, aka Boston Brand, who is a character, he, I really like him. I, I'm sure you could tell reading that character, like, oh, this has got to be a guy that Nate likes, right? Uh, cause
1: he has an existential crisis in the middle of the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um,
0: he's, so Boston Brand's character is, uh, he was a, an acrobat who died. And rather than pass on, he lingered as a ghost to solve his own murder. He became the dead man. Uh, and then he stuck around as a character in his own book for a while. He mostly shows up as a guest star uh, to sort of act in the same way he does in this, as like a spiritual guide to superheroes. He uh, can enter the material world, but he can't interact with it unless he possesses someone. And so there's lots of guest stories where it's like, oh, we want to tell a story about ghosts and stuff. So Deadman shows up and he teaches Firestorm that there are
1: ghosts.
0: (laughs) Uh, He's eventually, I don't know if it's initially the case, but he's eventually connected to uh, Nightwing's backstory. Where he was in the same circus as the Flying Graysons and was like a colleague of Nightwing's father before he died.
1: He definitely has that sort of aesthetic.
0: He's got a great costume. He's he's a chalk-white bald man with no eyebrows. And he wears a red, like, evil Knievel jumpsuit with a giant Dracula collar <laughs> yes. and a white D on his chest.
1: It's skin tight.
0: It's got a huge, no, V. Yes. It's very, like, you can tell. Um, I'm pretty sure this is a character from the 70s. I would be very surprised if he was from any earlier than that.
1: <laughs> oh, no, he's pretty
0: great and he kind of got swamped through this like in-between zone where the newly dead die we see a, a woman and her son who died in a car accident mm-hmm. and get reunited he there's a really interesting idea that's brought up in this of like poltergeists are basically like semi-sentient storms of ectoplasm that coalesce in places of like violence and uh conflict and dead man's like don't go through them because they smell bad and then when they get to the borderland of heaven, the Phantom Stranger shows up, who we've talked about before, because he shows up in Sandman. Uh, he's is, he is a mysterious character of unknown origin. There's lots of implications that he's a fallen angel, or that he's um, the last centurion, or the wandering Jew, or maybe even Judas.
1: He's also, I mean, he, in this role, he's sort of the ferryman. Yeah. You know, like, you know, on the river. And then I think it's interesting to note that They're standing in a field of these sort of puffy cloud flowers that become important,
0: and he picks one and puts it in his lapel. Um, Yeah, and I think the idea is like we see Boston Brand, who's like an unambiguous good guy, like he's this gentle guide who like wants to help people, and that's all he really exists to do is to like hang out and help people. And then we have the Phantom Stranger, who's this more, as he is identified later, walks a path between Manger and Moloch. He's this kind of more morally ambiguous character. And then in the end, we get uh, Etrigan, who at least tries to present himself as a fully evil being. He's not, obviously. But that's what he wants you to think.
1: But I also like how like, Dead Man's like, mm, I can't go any further. I'm out of here. And then Stranger's like, I'll take you.
0: Yeah. And so he guides him into heaven. Till they're looking for Abby. That's what's going on here. He's, he's looking for Abby's soul. Uh they In heaven, they encounter Alec Holland, who's, like, still hanging around. He thanks Swan Thing for laying him to rest.
1: I think it's interesting because it's implied here that there's an infinite number of heavens, and the heavens are specific to the people that live in those heavens. And the stranger takes them to Alec Holland's heaven. Yeah. Which is sort of a green, like...
0: Midwestern forest. In yeah. the contrast to Swamp Thing who lives in the swamp, while like, Collins heaven is full of like pine trees and, and rolling fields and stuff, it's still like green and naturalistic, but it's a very different kind of naturalistic than the world that the Swamp Thing inhabits. Further sort of driving home that like they're different guys.
1: Yeah, and I think it sort of, it also like reinforces that closure that was in the burial where he thanks him for giving him, you know, the the ability to be at peace. and now he's in his own green heaven that he created, and mm-hmm. he's with Linda.
0: They're thinking about reincarnating, but he doesn't want to quite do it yet. And then there's this like really <laughs> a kind of sweet, like bittersweet moment where uh, Swamp Thing does not want to go talk to Linda, and it's like part of it I think is you know his the woman he loves is lost, and like here's this woman that he thought he loved, but also I think part of it is like maybe the connection isn't quite as severed.
1: Well, I was going to As ask you, you because they specifically make a point where they're like, "Now nah, we don't want to be reincarnated right now." Do they come back? Are they reincarnate? Is that like a nod to another story I don't that remember. they happened, or is that sort of just like a hook that was put in there for some kind of future use? Maybe? Much,
0: much later, they bring Alec Holland back, um, and he actually becomes this one thing. But that doesn't happen until like, but that doesn't happen until like twenty fourteen. Or, like, 2011 or something like that. I don't know if they ever actually, if they come back at any point before that. But there is definitely this implication that, like, yeah, they could be reincarnated. It also kind of implies that, like, what we learn later with the cycle, like, it's like, is how, there's this sort of, like, sad question that hangs over it, which is, like, if Alec Holland returns to Earth, is he going to leave it in the same way he did before? Has he done this before? Is this the first time he's gone to heaven and, and then come back?
1: It makes me question, I mean, we understand that the swamp thing, Earth Elemental, is forged by the Earth in some kind of traumatic event. Yeah. But, and that, like, but is a human always the catalyst for creating the swamp thing? Or is it just in this instance, he was created at the explosion, at the death of Alec
0: I think the implication is a human has to be involved because plants don't have a consciousness and a will, and so they need a living creature. Uh, no, they need like an animal to give its w- to imbue it with with will and agency that a plant doesn't have. I mean, you know, Swamp Thing talks about with Woodrow about like the di- how he's not a plant and like the difference between plants and animals. But Swamp Thing isn't totally a plant either because plants don't walk around and punch people.
1: <laughs> That's true. So then he continues on his journey. He goes with the Phantom Stranger and then he meets...
0: The Spectre.
1: The Spectre.
0: So the introduction is really great because they're like walking in a void and then this white band opens up, like appears behind them and then that is revealed to be his eye. So the Spectre is a, a really old comics character. He's a golden age character and he is the wrath of God. And his origin in the comics was that uh, Jim Corrigan was a police officer who was gunned down by criminals.
1: He's got definitely a noir feel. Yeah.
0: And then he basically makes a deal with God to become the embodiment of his revenge and become the Spectre. And then the Spectre stories are all like kind of almost horror, like kind of a middle ground between classic horror and classic superheroes where he sort of goes around and he finds criminals and people who have done horrible things. And he gives them ironic punishments. And he's like this super powerful figure in DC Comics and has never known what to do with him because he's classic and foundational to the universe, but he's like way too powerful and almost a little too scary to be like a hero. So there's lots and lots of stories where they try to figure out what the fuck to do with the Spectre. Hal Jordan, the Green Lantern, is the Spectre
1: for a while at one point. This is, is before that. I think this is interesting because he's the character that's sort of that like linchpin where, like you said, he's classic... Superhero, mm. classic horror, and he comes in right in the middle of the story where Alan Moore is splitting from the classic mm-hmm. manifestation of this Swamp Thing to his version.
0: I think all of these characters that appear in this issue are characters that kind of occupy a similar space to where Alan Moore is taking Swamp Thing, like Boston Brand, Dead Dead Man is a superhero name, but a go- a disembodied ghost that guides people from the afterlife isn't really a superhero character. Right. He's just kind of wearing superhero clothes. The same thing with the Phantom Stranger is like he's not really a superhero, and neither is the Spectre, and neither is the Swamp Thing, and neither is Etrigan. They're all they all occupy this sort of weird middle ground between like superheroes and then more classical horror and fantasy and and even just like myth- mythological tropes.
1: Yeah, I think that's why they kind of actually fit very well into what going on with him
0: and so the specter initially doesn't want to let them go to hell and because he doesn't want them to bring back abigail and they have this kind of (laughs) philosophical argument about like well you know is bringing her back going to invalidate god's will she was put there against god's will but bringing her back to life fucks things up because people aren't supposed to come back to life and then the phantom stranger uh checkmate atheists the specter by bringing up jim corrigan (laughs) and the specter laughs and lets them go to hell
1: I think that's also interesting because we we assume that Swamp Thing is going to get Abby back because he loves her. Yeah. But nowhere in the actions and the conversations of the Swamp Thing does he actually ever say, I have to get her soul back because I love her and I can't let her go.
0: Yeah. Well, he doesn't – he is – yeah, he's going to have that moment. But for for now, he's he's just playing the hero uh, the, the way the specter is drawn in this sequence Is really great Like his scale and scope of him Is impressive He's like the only thing that's shown up yet That makes Swamp Thing look small
1: Well yeah you could see the one where he The one little panel where he's Standing there with his green cape And then you see the Phantom Stranger With his smaller cape mm. And then you see a little tiny Swamp Thing Like a little baby Groot He's just there
0: And there's like whole universes <laughs> Pouring out of his like cloak Yeah uh, and then they go to hell and we meet the final guide, our boy Etrigan the Demon.
1: He's back. I think like he, it's kind of like Hob yeah. and and Dream. Like, I think Swamp Thing and Etrigan are actually friends. But yeah. neither one of them want to admit that they like each other. He
0: doesn't he doesn't want to admit that. He doesn't want to admit that he's a good guy. Uh, but he's, he wants to pay Swamp Thing back for his... Uh, Help. His help with the monkey king thing. And then he also wants uh, a boon from the stranger, which turns out to be that flower in his lapel. He wants to plant it in hell. And what, what does he say? Uh, How precious, let this blossom be my fee, to plant within yon dark satanic mill and have its beauty there for all to see, compared to which hell shall grow bleaker still.
1: So he just wants to mock the poor demons in hell does by he- showing him... By showing them something beautiful.
0: Does he? Or is he actively trying to make hell a better place? Is he is this bullshit? Is he is he is he serious and this is just part of like a ironic psychological punishment, or is, you know, he actually trying to do something nice and he can't admit it?
1: I guess it's kinda of, could be both, because I think that's the nature of Etcher and he's sort of like he has a dual nature. He can't he can't you can't tell if he's evil or not. I mean, he's yeah. sort of walking that fine line. I love the one part where, like, Swamp Thing is just like he's gasping with his like hands over his mouth, and like Etrigan's like patting him on the shoulder, like "Sorry, bro."
0: Yeah, and so they they walk through hell. We see Sunderland is being punished. Uh, he has to, as you know, he was this like big, you know, pompous, super powerful businessman, and now he's been reduced. To a servant for a monster, he has to polish his hooves.
1: Yes, and then he gets his tongue cut out and put back in on multiple times.
0: Yeah, oh, and then the be- the best part, uh, Arcane is like on top of this like writhing pile of insects that have grown out of his body and are like eating him. And he's taunts Swamp Thing for having to go to hell, and he he claims victory, and then he says, uh, "Before you go, how many years have I been here?" And Swamp Thing says, "Since yesterday." <laughs> And Arcane's like, yesterday, and then just screams. <laughs> and for like a couple pages, well, or at least for the next page, his screaming is just in the background. Right. And then uh, there's a bunch of demons fighting over Abby, and they're all really gross and grotesque. One of them is just wearing a funnel for a hat. There's like a very clear, like a uh, Bosch influence going on yeah, here. Yeah, that's,
1: I mean, definitely. You see that. So it's sort of it's a gradual manifestation in like the iconography of Bosch because you start like it starts with arcane with the monsters the mm. the bugs that are mutating into these sort of fantasy bugs and then even the vision of hell which goes from like you know the he- you know heaven and then mm. you know the green heaven and into like this sort of as he's walking through hell it gets weirder and weirder and then the you know the demons get more disturbing and the conversations get sort of more surreal and then you see like that three-headed demon that's like a cat and a baby and a frog?
0: Yeah. There's one demon that's just like a little egg with a monster coming out of it with an arrow through it. Uh There's also, I think, really in- interesting and relevant to uh, the stuff that will happen in Sandman. There's a part where uh, Swamp Thing asks Etrigan, how could god allow such a place and etrigan is like god didn't make this place people make it for themselves
1: yeah well, that's... which
0: is the same theme that will uh neil gaiman will expand upon with all the stuff with hell and lucifer in sandman
1: yeah and i think that i mean it's it's very clear that that's that this becomes an influence on neil gaiman as he's writing sandman mhm i mean you can see from the next issue... Well, maybe not the next issue, but maybe the issue is... Yeah. After
0: that. Uh, so they get they get Abby. Uh, they're br- going to bring her back. The demons try to keep them there. They taunt Etrigan for being too soft and human. He breathes fire on them. I really like the way Etrigan is drawn in this. Where, on paper, I think... It feels like he wouldn't fit in with this vision of hell, Which is like much more grotesque and, and abstract... Because Etrigan just kind of looks like a, he's a Jack Kirby drawing of a demon. But here they, um, Tottenham and Bissett take his features and they view them with this level of like detail and like organic elements that make him in close up like genuinely disturbing in the way that the other demons are too. Like his sort of eyebrows become these kind of like tendrils. He sort of looks like a catfish. Yeah. You, the, uh, the actual story, um, the inspiration for Etrigan, visually was uh, there. Jack Kirby was a big fan of Prince Valiant, and there is an issue of Prince Valiant where he disguises himself as a demon by pulling a chicken skin over his head, and Jack Kirby based uh, Etrigan's design on that image, oh, okay. which, like, I guess, was just like burned into his brain from when he he first read it.
1: Yeah, because he, I mean, he kind of like he changes from like classic sort of devilish imp to sort of like you said, like a catfish, almost like, a, like, a an Asian mythology inspired look to sort of this weird, um, monkey or like humanoid kind of view. And then finally back to like his own sort of classic yellow face, sort of less threatening version of what he looks like.
0: Also, there's a neat little thing where when he's opening the portal to send Swamp Thing and uh, Abby back, uh, he brings up like quantum physics and stuff. Yeah. Which is a cool little element. Also, Arcane's severed head tries to bite Swamp Thing's leg and keep him in hell, and, and <laughs> Etrigan punts him.
1: Yes, he literally punts him right back into wherever he is.
0: The sound effect is scunch when he kicks him.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of, you can see sort of like. He's leaving this sort of red and black and yellow fire kind of hell. Mm. And as he's going through the portal, it changes from black to like a light kind of turquoise green. And then when they come back out of the portal, everything is sort of washed clean and they sort of... Pastels, blues, and grays. It's not quite the swamp colors, mm-hmm. but it's kind of like a sanitized, clean version of where. He well, it's just
0: the, the swamp colors in in the snow in the winter because she comes back, comes back, and Abby's on this like bed of moss in the middle of the swamp, and she's like, "What? Are, what are you doing out here in the snow?"
1: Well, yeah, because she doesn't really remember, and that's her question: Is why are you crying? Like she doesn't understand. What has happened?
0: And we get another one of those great last... I love these um, full panel... uh, full, Like, uh, full-page spreads that we get in here. Where this is just, like, a really great, super detailed picture of the swamp in winter with Swamp Thing standing over Abby. And she says, you're, you're crying. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I mean, the Swamp Thing is, I, I am certainly not crying when I'm reading that. No way, <laughs> no how. I would never cry. <laughs> uh, so...
1: And now for something completely different. This is definitely, this is another, I'm going to keep talking about Same Man, but this is 100% like what happens in Same Man, where there's like an intense emotional like mm-hmm. climax and then something very strange and weird.
0: Yeah, this is a nice little breather. It's called Pog. It's got, well, it's got a great cover. First, can we talk about the cover, that Swamp Thing fighting an alligator? <laughs> Of course, Uh lo- people were
1: probably saying, "When is he going to fight an alligator?" Mm-hmm. And here he is fighting this alligator. Uh,
0: so this is another issue drawn by McManus. Uh, I really like his art. His art looks especially good uh, with the like on this clean digital version. Like it really like the blacks are super dark, uh, and all the like contrasting sort of spot colors are are re- really pop. Uh, this issue is super weird.
1: My question is why why
0: okay so what this issue is is it it is a it's an ecological fable about aliens whose world has been despoiled who are looking for a new planet and come to earth and find that humans are already in the process of ruining it and then leave and they encounter a swamp thing in the middle Uh, those aliens are the characters from walt kelly's classic comic strip pogo I don't know. My answer is, I don't know. (laughs) Obviously, Alan Moore loves old comics and he loves comic strips and he likes doing references and tributes and homages and deconstructions also of older stories. I think in this there's an attempt to sort of connect the kind of sort of more the softer sort of environmental messages that Walt Kelly sort of snuck into Pogo with the sort of harsher, uh, environmental message that is in Swamp Thing. I think, um, other than that, I don't know. I think, I think this is just a story idea he had, and figured Swamp Thing would be a a place to put it. Because Swamp Thing's not super important in this story. It is, like, it is very similar to those Sandman stories, where Dream just kind of shows up. Because they, they land on Earth, they encounter Swamp Thing, and then, uh, Swamp Thing and... Pog, the, the Pogo stand-in, uh, have a conversation through pictures where he ex- Pog explains that their planet was destroyed by the loneliest animal of all, clearly humans, <laughs> uh, and then Swamp Thing goes to show him, uh, hey, there are humans here, and they're gross, and they're eating hot dogs and cheeseburgers, and they've fucked everything up, too. The little alligator character gets eaten by real alligators, and Swamp Thing tries to save him, but he's dead, and then they hold a funeral for him. And then they leave in their ship, which is a talking turtle named Find the Lady. <laughs> I like this issue. It's very weird. I think it's mostly just here as a breather, because the the end of that really inten- emotionally intense story, and then the next issue, uh, we get back into the swamp thing mythology and ongoing plot. And here we just get another, a little a little rest. It's the Tottlebone and Bissette get to take a break. Um, so with McManus coming back on to do the art. Uh, which I think would mostly was there probably to keep the book on schedule. I don't know. I really like... uh There are a couple things I do really like about this issue. I like the language. The... All the Pogo characters talk in this weird, like, patois where they use synonyms and words that kind of sound right or new words that are clearly, like, built sideways out of the right word and then... Swamp Thing can't understand them, and but he speaks in, like, these, like, glyphs, like, implying that they don't understand English. And then Pog and him talk through pictures, which creates this interesting nested thing where it's, like, pictures of this universal language. Here we have a character from a comic book communicating with a character from a comic strip. And they're literally drawing comic strips for each other to express... You know, their past and their emotional state. I think that's really nice. Other than that, this is mostly just sort of a weird curiosity. What what did you think of this one?
1: I thought it was the same thing. I thought it was sort of like an ecological message. Um, I thought it was weird because like in my mind, it seems like these characters are so dated. Maybe that's it. Maybe that was the point was to take these sort of dated characters and, and try to freshen them up.
0: Well, also, I think one of the things we have to take in mind is, like, this is the 80s. This is before, like, Fantagraphics and all these other companies made these big pushes to archive these things. And, you you know, I can walk to the library, and I can pick up a big phone book-sized collection of Pogo right now. And I can uh, spend all day reading it and get really annoying because I won't stop talking about Pogo. So maybe
1: people... He but would- you couldn't
0: really do that. I think this is Alan Moore being like, hey, you like Swamp Thing you'll like pogo like please go check out this comic and here let me like show you the common ground between this thing i know you like because you're reading it and this thing that i like that i think deserves more love like if this was now he could just record a podcast about pogo
1: (laughs) yeah well i'm sure he can talk about it endlessly it's just so weird it's very weird the whole thing where like like you said the alligator character gets eaten by it's an alligator, sad. I... and then they like have a funeral and they put like his mask, which is so much like reminds me of like a lot of like imagery from like modern comics of like you know like Superman when he dies and his oh with cape. the cape yeah yeah and it's, a, it's sort of the same thing. it's like laying to rest. I thought it was really um, kind of cool because like everyone knows the Pogo characters and knows what they look like, but you can you can obviously identify them even though they're wearing, like, full costumes. Like, you know which one is, like, which character, which yeah. I thought was interesting. Yeah, yeah,
0: that really does highlight the strength of the design because they they are basically in silhouette the entire time. Uh, Yeah, I don't know how much more there is to say about it. Art's great. It's weird. There's some stuff to appreciate.
1: I think it also sets a tone of, like there's an element of, like, psychedelic, like, you know, there's, like, some kind of really trippy parts of Swamp Thing. Mm -hmm. And this sort of is one of those sort of proto versions of some kind of trippy stuff that's going to be happening.
0: Yeah, it's also like, oh, Swamp Thing lives in a big weird universe and some days, you know, he might just walk through the swamp and meet some aliens and, like, maybe those, sometimes those aliens will be classic comic strip characters and, like, that's just a thing that can happen. Which I appreciate. Uh, Let's talk about the next issue. This is issue...
1: What is this? 33.
0: 33. Yeah, 33.
1: Abandoned Houses. Uh,
0: So this has a framing device that's drawn by Ron Randall. And then most of the issue is a reprint that is written by Len Wein and drawn by Bernie Wrightson. Uh, This is really interesting because it is a reprint of an older comic. But Moore uses it to add to his mythology and his ongoing... Uh, story, and so, originally, this was a story published in House of Secrets, that was sort of a proto-Swamp Thing. That's the thing that would happen a lot in old superhero comics, is a character would originally appear in an anthology series, and then if they were really popular, they would be spun off onto their own. And, uh, one thing that happens sometimes, which does happen with Swamp Thing, is rather than just continuing the original story, they rework it when they launch the ongoing. So, What Moore does is he establishes, no, that original proto-swamp thing story is in canon and is literally in-universe a proto-swamp thing. So, what happens in this issue is Abby is asleep. She enters what we will eventually learn to be the Dreaming, which isn't quite that yet. She meets Cain and Abel, the same Cain and Abel from who will show up in Sandman, and... Abel tells her the story of the original Swamp Thing, which we see just through the reprinted story, which is that it's kind of a a much more clearly gothic horror story. Alec Olsen is a dude who lives in a manor by the swamp, and he has a laboratory, and his friend, his quote, friend and rival, Damien, uh, sabotages his laboratory and buries him in the swamp and steals his wife and then Alex rises from the swamp as the Swamp Thing. He stops Damien from killing... Is she still... What is her name in this? Is she still Linda? She's like... I oh, no, it's still yeah. Linda. Linda Olson Ridge. Damien is becoming increasingly paranoid, and he believes that Linda has figured out that he murdered Alex, and he goes to murder her. Alex, as the Swamp Thing, busts through the window and kills Damien, but then Linda is horrified of him, and he walks off back into the swamp. And then uh, Abby... Tries to leave the dreaming. Cain is mad that she didn't go to his house and doesn't want her to take the secret with him because then it's not a secret. And he's very concerned about the difference between secrets and mysteries. He kills Abel and then Abby wakes up and she cannot remember her dreams. She tries to write it down, but she can't.
1: I think this is sort of... I mean, you talked about this before, taking a classic um, device and using it in a modern way. So he takes this Cain and Abel and their history... House of Secrets or the House of Mystery mm-hmm. and brings them into this, like you said, the framing device for this this sort of throwback gothic horror of the original Swamp Thing. And I think this is sort of, it's kind of like he says, okay, here is, here is Swamp Thing and here's a story about Swamp Thing and here's my idea about these different manifestations and then... Using the the original Swamp Thing as a you know sort of a reinforcer that there are multiple Swamp Things, so that's kind of like interesting.
0: Yeah. Also, uh, Abel straight up says the thing about like, oh, the Earth creates an elemental when it needs it, and right. that's happened many times before, and will continue to happen. Your Swamp Thing is one of them. This Swamp Thing is one of them. But neither of them are the first one, and neither of them will be the last one.
1: Yeah. And I think also, I mean, it's kind of goes back to the story of Cain and Abel when she when. When she wants to leave, he says, Well, you know, you owe me a forfeit, and Mm -hmm. you know what the forfeit is he's gonna kill him because he's constantly killing him. I really like
0: reference to the fact that their book was canceled,
1: yeah. But I thought it was interesting because it was kind of like, Hey, same thing, like, hey, here's some characters from the old sort of um, the old style of horror, comic horror, and you know use it to frame this um, another old style of what the Swamp Thing is, but then also use both of those parts to create this new manifestation of the Swamp Thing.
0: Mm-hmm. There's lots of cycle and circle imagery. The thing that prompts the story is the bracelet that uh, Linda Olsen gives to Alex that he loses when he becomes the Swamp Thing, which raises the question that I brought up before. Do you think Alex Olsen is Alec? what like, becomes Alec Holland? Is this Alec Holland in a previous life?
1: I don't know if the, it's him in a previous life, or there, there's always just a similar sort of genesis of how the Swamp Thing is formed.
0: Because,
1: mm-hmm. I mean, there's common elements. There's, you know, they're both scientists. There's both some kind of, like, murder or tragic, mm-hmm. you know, demise. It's fire. There's, there's, like, you know, some connection to the Swamp. Mm-hmm. So it kind of, like... Is this swamp thing more sentient because he was exposed to also that
0: the bio formula,
1: Yeah, the the formula?
0: I don't know. The the other question is, is the Olson Swamp thing actually Alec Olson or is it the same thing where he just doesn't remember being or he just has the memories of Alec Olsen? I don't I think know. So
1: I think he like this new swamp thing, who was who is Alec Holland, mm. is supposed to be even more self-aware because he has this element. This swamp thing who attacks the man in there, he's kind of more like a primitive, like oh, I'm a monster, you know, like yeah, because it's like a horror story. He's mm-hmm. a, you know, he's a almost like Frankenstein's monster. He's not his own entity. He's not fully formed as like a creature. He doesn't have free will almost. He's kind of like, I'm gonna smash!
0: Yeah, I mean, we get a little bit of his internal monologue, like, he still remembers being Olsen, and he's, but he is. he's more of, like, a, a ghost with a physical form than he is uh, just a dude on his own with his own sort of will and agency and self-awareness. Uh,
1: so she has the information that she needs. She just can't remember it. She just it. can't remember it.
0: Yeah, it's so a nice little bit of dramatic irony. We know something the characters don't know. Uh, then there's a poster gallery.
1: Well, that's kind of like a classic, like British horror thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Like I
1: mentioned before, like you, you're a stand-in for the character that's in danger, mm-hmm. but there's nothing you can do to help them. Just be like, you know, that heightened fear of knowing something that you can't help them with. Yeah, I think that's weird.
0: Also, when she crinkles up the paper uh, at the end to throw it in the trash, it looks like Swamp Thing's head. In the last panel before the, the poster oh, gallery.
1: Oh, I didn't even get that. That's... That's uh, something, I guess.
0: The poster gallery's neat. There's just, like, these pinups. Uh, there's a really good Swamp Thing one by that's where it's, like, him at sunset. And he's all, like, orange and green with, like, the tubers growing off of him. And he's waist deep in the swamp. There's a little... There's a... One of Abby sort of like leaning on a tree.
1: It's a very Art Nouveau circular image.
0: Yeah. And then there's a big close up of Swamp Thing's face from uh Bassette. Uh which...
1: I don't like this one. He kind of no. looks like Sasquatch in it.
0: It's yeah, it's it's a little <laughs> too I feel like there are parts where that are just flat colors that should have more details in them, like above his eyes and stuff. It's fine. The best one is that first uh Taliban Swamp Thing pin up. Uh, and then we get to the Rite of Spring, which, boy, this is a hell of an issue. <laughs> First, great cover. Swamp Thing and Abby in the in the swamp is this, like, very light, painterly cover uh, with all of this great detail. There's, like, lights reflecting off the swamp. Water, and they're, like, in an embrace. So she is topless. Um, he's got his eyes closed and he's smiling.
1: Yeah, it's definitely, like, almost like a romance novel cover. That's yes. Like- very as much so, and I th- think the like calling it the rights of spring, it kind of it sets this tone that there's going to be some like yeah stuff going on. Uh,
0: so it's uh the art team is uh, beset and in, again. Back the boys are back in town, uh, and you I can kind of understand why they might have needed two issues of them not on it to uh, make time for this because this issue is very visually dense and very uh like weird
1: yeah, yeah. If the, the panels the color the artwork i mean it's just there's just there's so much more to look at than there is to read
0: yeah so what happens in this issue is matthew's in a coma abby and swamp thing have this moment where she sort of re- starts to reveal that she, you know she's in love with someone she isn't sure how to tell him, and then she—it is Swamp Thing, and she confesses her love to Swamp Thing. And she's initially embarrassed, and then he reveals that he has also harbored feelings for her, basically since they met, and he's never acted on them because he didn't want to make things weird, and he didn't know if it was going to be okay because he's a swamp monster. And then they kiss, and he tastes like lime, like citrus, I guess, which she she likes a lot. Uh, and then he's like, "Well, there needs to be something more." And she eats one of his tubers and has this psychedelic vision where she becomes one with him and one with the plant. She sees the world through her eyes and becomes connected to all living things. And the book goes completely crazy with psychedelic imagery. Twists the panels, twists the page so you have to turn it around to read it. Uh, she sees the like life signs of the insects inside Swamp Thing's body. there's this like panel where she's like completely in shadow but there's like a grub at the center of her body but then around it is the universe like all like stars and stuff she inhabits a rat she she inhabits the thing the rat is eating and then she comes out of the vision and kisses swamp thing again and the last panel is another full page spread of them kissing in the swamp and he's got like tubers growing off of his back and flowers growing on his
1: neck i thought see first I was concerned. I had like an anxiety when I started reading this because when I realized that she was eating the tuber, mm-hmm. I kind of, I thought back to the first book where the Floronic man eats the tubers and he goes crazy. Yeah, And I was like, okay, is this going to be sort of like, you know, mm-hmm. is this going to go off the rails? And then it doesn't. And then I realized that it's important for her to sort of have this bonding with him. Because they're so connected. They have Mm. to be connected for the story to go on. So she has to sort of understand the elemental nature of him. And then also she has to sort of make this sort of connection to this world that he is made of, which I think is interesting.
0: I'm gonna say right now, I think this issue is beautiful. I love this issue so much. And I'm gonna make it's kind of a hot take. Swamp Thing and Abigail Arcane is my favorite romance in all of fiction. I think their love story is so beautiful and their characters, like their relationship together is is so well done. And like the center of it is this issue of this like moment of like, religious like this moment of like romance and connection that is so powerful and intense that it becomes this like religious experience of oneness with the universe
1: well i think yeah because i think even after this she now considers herself married to swamp thing yeah like this has sort of like linked them together on an existential level and now they're a lifetime partnership Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting because it's kind of like a lot of Swamp Thing is about, especially the earlier issues, are about um, man's abuse of nature. Mm-hmm. And then their relationship and her and him, their connection is almost like a perfect harmonic relationship between nature and humanity. Yeah. So I think that sort of like offsets a lot of like the horrible, you know, trying to kill. Um, swamp thing using pesticides you know i mean there's lots of horrible earth related heavy handed messages that come later on but i think for this sort of issue by itself it sort of sets that tone of like a beautiful like harmonic balance between nature and man which obviously doesn't last i mean it lasts for them Mm because they're iconic like couple in like comic books but i think like for Swamp Thing's relationship to other people in the world.
0: Yeah. I think it's also like a we get a really um we get this view into like Abby as a character because in like she has this experience of connection to the to the green and to the world and the way she experiences it contrasted with the way Swamp Thing experiences it. I think tells us a lot about her and a lot about like where their relationship has gone because when Swamp Thing meets with the red part, with the, like, the animal and aggressive part of the, of the world, you know, in the red and violent world issue in the first volume, he recoils and disgusts and retreats into, like, a lack of consciousness, whereas Abby, like, embraces it and sees the, the beauty even in the, like, violent act of the, like, rat eating another animal, and she, she doesn't recoil from it, like, she, she... She so is, like, you know, sort of more stronger stronger and more aware, in a way, than Swamp Thing is. And there's also, Swamp Thing continually struggles with this pull to leave his self behind. We see that in Down Amongst the Dead Men. When he first enters the green to go to heaven, he feels this, like, pull to dissipate his consciousness. And Abby is able to, she has, like, a strong enough will... That she's able to just sort of let her consciousness spread out amongst the world and then just pull it back in when she needs to. Whereas Swamp Thing is like constantly struggling against this um, instinct for... Like his death drive, essentially. This instinct for self-nullification.
1: I also think, I mean, overall, like seeing the whole arch of Abby, she's always been more self-aware than a lot of the other characters.
0: Yes. Well, I think that's like everyone in this is struggling for a sense of self that she's, she's not what she's struggling to, get to do is like find her place in the world. But like Matthew and Arcane and Swamp Thing are like, are in constant tormented struggle with themselves. And Swamp Thing is coming out of it and he's becoming more unified in his sense of self, but he's still like, you know, he's still not quite a plant and not quite a man.
1: Yeah. I have to say, I mean, this, could have had the tendency to be really pervy yes it really could have gone down a like weird i mean because it's written by men yeah it could have had this weird sort of like masculine kind of weirdness to it but it has a very I, i hate to say like tasteful but it has like a i mean it's overtly about like sex and like this sort of melding and and But it's kind of done in a way that's not, like... And there's not a lot of innuendo that kind of giving it, like, a leering kind of, like...
0: But it's a portrayal of sex, like, not as a physical act, but as, like, an act... Like, as a romantic and spiritual act, as, like, a a ritual and, like, a literal communion between two people. She essentially takes communion to commune with Swamp Thing and with the world at large. I think, like, this issue is... People joke about it, and it sounds... ...weird and gross out of context where you're like, yeah, she has sex with the Swamp Thing by eating a tuber that grows off of him. It sounds stupid, and then in context, I think it's, like, one of the most beautiful things I've ever read.
1: But I think it's interesting, like I said, with, like, the Floronic Man he ate the same tubers and had a terrible experience. Cause,
0: yeah, because he doesn't have the will, he doesn't have the sense of self, he's he's bitter and angry and selfish, and he perverts, rather than embracing the experience in the world, he tries to pervert it to hit and distort it to his, uh, his idea, and his ideals, and ends up wrecking everything in the process.
1: Well, I think it makes sense because Abby has to be in tune with the natural world, or she wouldn't even be open to being friends with yeah. The swap you know what I mean so I, it seems natural. But yeah, but the I mean the artwork is just phenomenal. I mean mm-hmm. the the use of the sort of, you know, exploded panels, there's lots of like double pat double page panels, lots of different innovative like panels, colors and tones. I mean it's just really like visually it's stunning. I mean it's probably one of the most beautiful issues i i
0: completely agree it's, it's just amazing and then alan moore's uh narration like he get, is more of that sort of like really thoughtful poetry the way he portrays abby's thought process as she you know enters into this like weird metaphysical space but it's really well done
1: it's also, also like you're like okay the swamp thing is cool he's like a monster he smashes yeah bad guys he fights for the environment and then you see this and you're like okay he's also very sort of intellectual very philosophical he's a lover
0: and a fighter yes
1: so he's like the whole package and it's and it's almost like a romance novel it's yeah. sort of presented in this sort of fuzzy kind of dewy kind of Um, Romantic style But I
0: feel like this sort of drags him back to Like an older type of character Like if you go like You know superheroes are constantly Compared to like mythology and stuff But if you go back to like Hercules and Gilgamesh Almost as much of those stories Are about like their Like love lives And their carnal appetites as they are About their Like punching monsters Yeah uh, and so Swamp Thing feels sort of more connected to those, where it's like the, you know, Swamp Thing's relationship with Abby is just as is like just as if not more important than his relationship with the Earth that he's like fighting to defend. Uh, yeah.
1: So overall, what did you think of the the entire volume? Oh, I absolutely loved it. I like I
0: started reading it and I was like, this is the good shit. This is Swamp Thing. This is why I like this book so much. And I feel like. This is not even really the high point. Like, I, there's an argument to be made that Rite of Spring* is the best issue, but there's so much more cool stuff to come. But I think the way that he they balance the tones, the sort of shift from the like grotesque horror of that Arcane story into ending with this like really beautiful like poem of an issue is just so impressive. I
1: think. I mean, it's very clear in this issue that you can see the influence that Alan Moore has had on modern comics. Absolutely. I mean, it's very clear that he's influencing Neil Gaiman in the writing of Sandman, which is the comic, I mean, even to the point where Cain and Abel are in it. Mm -hmm. But I feel like you can see the style, the technique, the, the sort of elements that Alan Moore starts to bring into comics sort of filtering out into, you know, influencing comics, you know, artists of today, writers of today, and even further out into like literature and popular culture, you can start to see the sort of influence that Al Moore is having on sort of the environment of what the comics industry is going to be. And then, like, you know, he's writing this in the 80s. So, you know, by the time like Sandman in the 90s and even 2000, you start to see... Like, the hooks and the creation that he's developing sort of funnel out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, like, you know, in the previous episode, you and I were talking about the, the way sci-fi evolved. And you can sort of track that through the Hugo Awards. And I feel like what Moore is doing in this comic reminds me a lot of what writers were doing with sci-fi in the 70s. You know, like where I said, like, where it kind of turns inward. It becomes about the self in context of the world and I feel like this is this is that this is feels like a 70s sci-fi novel but in a comic book form in a superhero universe
1: yeah yeah I mean you can I mean he I like that he he takes he understands the history of what he is doing he understands the um he understands the DC universe up until that point he understands the history of comics and what makes them appeal to people. And he takes those respectfully and creates something completely different. And I feel like that's a sign of a really good writer who's very thoughtful and thinks about, you know, not just like the character because it's, you know, he's not just like, oh, it's cool, I like the specter, I want to put him in here. Mm. But it's kind of like how can I how can I show something to someone in a sophisticated way that will make them understand? But also kind of give you that. I mean, that's why you like Elmore. Because you're like, oh, it's cool. Like, there's nods to, like, the secret, nerdy, like, history, of, of obscure comic book characters that only, like, you feel like you know. But Yeah, then but he... it's not
0: like, it's not like Ready Player One. Like, they mean something. Right. Like, the like yeah, like you were saying, the Spectre's there and it's cool because, hey, the Spectre. But it's also, like... Well, he there's a lot of he puts a lot of thought into like what is the specter? What does it mean that the specter exists in this universe? Like, what does that say about the world that this character is there? And what would it be like to meet him?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that like that's the sign of like you know the thoughtfulness, the the contemplation. And I feel like a lot of people like talk more about Alan Moore and his like personality and his mm-hmm. like disgruntled rants that come later on, but I feel like. In a lot of ways, he's probably disgruntled because people don't appreciate the sophisticated, subtle way that he's trying to present things. And they take what he's doing and present it in a heavy-handed way.
0: It's funny that he has, like... Because he does have such a reputation of being, like, a curmudgeon and, like, a jerk. And then, like, this comic is so, like, sweet and sensitive and emotional. And it's, like... I really paints a different picture of that guy
1: but i mean i mean would he have he would have the same rant if somebody said okay i'm going to make a movie of *Rights of spring and it's going to be like this really graphic soft core and it's going to be like you know then he would have that rant because then it would be the same thing you're taking something that's intellectual and existential and very subtle and you're manifesting it in a heavy-handed way i mean that's what ends up happening when you know that whole like story arc about how upset he gets about B for Vendetta, but that's exactly what happens. Yeah, they well, take what he creates and they interpret it. It's he's already interpreting something, mm-hmm. and he wants it depicted in a certain way. You reinterpret it and depict it in a coarser way than it originally was. That's going to make you upset. Well,
0: I also feel like I feel like there's no way to adapt an Alan Moore work in a way that is satisfying to him because he writes very specifically for c- comic book medium. Like, Rite of Spring is told the way it's told because it is a comic book. And you if you were going to tell the same story in a different medium, you would have to fundamentally change, like, the pace and the tone and the visual style of it because it's designed to be on a comic book page and to use a comic book page to tell a story.
1: And I think that's, like, that makes sense because Al Moore identifies, self-identifies as a comic book writer. And then other people who write comic books who also write novels and different things, they they're, they identify in a different way. But I think that's why he probably gets so upset.
0: Probably. probably. I mean, he clearly cares very deeply about the art of comics, which I think is part of why his comics are so good. Well, that's why a lot of his comics are so good. I'm not, I'm not going to give a blanket endorsement to all <laughs> Alan Moore comics, because some of them are not great.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, Whatever, he, he still needs a paycheck at the end of the day. Yeah. He's not like...
0: They can't all be... You can't knock them all out of the park. But, but I, I think that this volume definitely does. I I liked every issue. Even Pog, which is like this weird divergence. I still... There's a lot to it that I dig. And I would, I would not want to get rid of it.
1: I think this clearly sets up this sort of slide into the supernatural. Mm-hmm. The rest of the series really starts to take on that and like... Less like environmental story and less like you know, bad corporation is destroying the swamp to like hard hitting, like supernatural. Yeah, elements. I guess the
0: last question I have for you is now that we've gotten like a huge dose of his writing and his uh caption, his like poetic caption specifically, who is a more flowery comic book writer? Is it Alan Moore or Neil Gaiman?
1: I think I think Neil Gaiman is more flowery, but mm-hmm. I think that Almore is like I can turn it on when I need to. Mm-hmm. So I mean he you can tell he he likes to write those stories where Swampling is punching a man into yeah. like the stratosphere. But he also can if he needs to be sensitive and emotional and I think he in a shorter period of time, Alan Moore has created a more complex character. I mean, mm-hmm. it takes like 16 volumes to get to the point where... or
0: It's a different strategy, I think. Because the idea with Sandman is he is revealed to be complex over the course of it. Where it is, Alan Moore is much more interested in exploring Swamp Thing's internal life. So we get to see how complicated he is from the very beginning
1: also i think the swamp thing is different from sandman or morpheus the dreaming he he doesn't need to go through that redemptive phase no like Man has to he's not like revealed to be like acting like an asshole and then has to go through i mean he's he's kind of like just sort of fully formed like he comes out of the swamp and says like what's going on like mm-hmm. he, you know what i mean it's not like he's being punished He's not put into the swamp or made to be the Swamp Thing because he's being punished for bad. Behavior.
0: Well, it's it's kind of the, like I said; it's almost sort of the opposite thing, where it's like Sandman is a tragedy about a tragic character, and the big twist of Swamp Thing is that he's not a tragic character. No, I and mean, like he's he he is, you know, he it seemed like he was when we thought he was Alec Holland, but he's not. He's something else entirely different.
1: And then also, I mean, it's very clear that the Swamp Thing is more of a classic superhero.
0: Yeah, he's definitely much more of a superhero than than Morpheus is. Uh yeah, so I think we're I think we're done uh with this episode with this volume. Uh so next week we're gonna be doing uh another novella episode. What we did, decided we were gonna do the death of Ivan Illich, right? Yes. Uh so that'll be cool just get some some Russian literature.
1: It'd be nice to get in some hard hitting Russian literature right in the beginning of the summer. That's always yeah, a good it's smart a good... move. <laughs> yeah I
0: mean, we could have read The (laughs) Overcoat. That's true. The thing is, though, we're really... uh, We're... we're, You know, we can't escape the giant beard, it seems. No.
1: Maybe that's what made me think of it.
0: Because, I mean, visually, there's a lot of overlap between Tolstoy and Alan Moore. Uh, So, yeah, we're going to do that. That'll be cool, I think. And And then
1: then we're going to do book three. Is this when we meet Constantine? Yes.
0: This is what... I believe... Either at the middle or the end of this volume is when Constantine shows up. Uh, I forget what this was called. um, This volume that we we were just talking about uh, was called Love and Death in the original printings. Let me see if I can find what the one we're about to read is called.
1: I think you really can't talk about 80s comics without talking about Constantine. I mean, I feel like if you...
0: He's the sensational character find in the 80s.
1: If you're not, if you're a Gen Xer and you have no, like, connection to Constantine, then you you just didn't have, like...
0: The Curse. That's what this next one's going to be called. The Curse.
1: Yeah, and I think that sort of sets up the tone of what...
0: Yeah, this is where, like you were saying, this is where it really gets into, like... I think this is the one where it really gets into those, like, fantasy, supernatural elements and starts to grow up sort of beyond the, the roots
1: I think Pun this is also the point where you start to see Alan Moore creating his own characters yeah. instead of rebooting a character or repurposing a previous character. Because he creates Constantine, right?
0: Yeah, I think it's kind of funny. We get in Down Among the Dead Men, these, uh, he sort of gives us this overview of all of these sort of like ambiguous characters that exist in this sort of weird space in the superhero universes. And then I think he really does add to that tradition with Constantine. Constantine really does feel of a piece with Dead Man and the Phantom Stranger in Etrigan. Like, he's the next link in that chain.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, of course, then you start to see it. I mean, he appears in Sandman, mm. and then his mother appears in Sandman. Yeah. So there's a sort of, like, kind of hint that there might be, like, this long legacy of Constantine characters, and then Constantine gets his own book, and mm-hmm. he starts creating his own spinoffs. So it's very interesting, The sort of, like flow or the sort of path that you know now you start to see alan moore's work showing up in other places yeah kind of like what he does now writers today are doing what he did and bringing his characters into new stories and things
0: yeah it's kind of the beautiful thing about these sort of comic book universes where like everything you add to it becomes part of it for, and fertile ground for other people to use later.
1: Let's just quickly talk about the new Watchmen TV series.
0: Yeah, so they're doing a sequel to Watchmen as an HBO series. I think it's very weird and misguided. Does I don't, Al
1: Moore have anything to do with no, it? it? No. Is it based off any of the existing... I don't
0: think so. I, don't, I think it's just somebody extrapolating from the ending of Uh, Watchmen I don't really get it I'm kind of interested in it Because from the trailer It looked really weird And I In a sort of like Can't look away from a car crash way Really want to know What they're going to do But I think it's I I don't think you should be I don't think you should be Making a sequel to Watchmen And you especially Shouldn't be making a sequel To Watchmen As a TV show
1: I think it might actually Be I think the Watchmen story Might actually be better As a TV series Because it's a lot more Oh then as a movie Yes Yeah I thought I really got this sort of kind of like Preacher vibe When Don Johnson shows up And he's like the sheriff And I'm like okay is this like tongue in cheek You know is it like Preacher is kind of like Almost making fun of itself as it exists Because I
0: definitely am of two minds About the sequel thing Because I'm like don't make a sequel to Watchmen Don't touch it just let it be it's own thing If you want to make a story Just make your own fucking story But also I'm like well A big part of Watchmen is like Rorschach is a libertarian, he gives his journal to the libertarian newspaper, and we're seeing now the kind of, like, dark consequence of that sort of, like, you know, three-percenter libertarian, don't tread on me movement has sort of curdled into this alt-right thing now, and so telling a story where it's like, here is Rorschach's legacy, and it is a legacy of brutality, it, there's something valuable to that. But maybe just, like, you know, Watchmen was a story where Alan Moore took characters that existed. And he made his own versions of them, and took the parts that he liked, and exaggerated some elements. Like, because Rorschach is based on the question, and like they're all based on those Charlton Comics characters. So, if you want to tell the story about the dark legacy of Rorschach, which is also relevant because a lot of people didn't get the, a lot of bad people didn't understand Watchmen and came to sympathize with Rorschach in the same way that they sympathize with like John Galt or something. But if you want to tell that story. Make your own character that's not quite Rorschach in the same way Rorschach is not quite the question. Like It's truer to the spirit of the original Watchmen story anyway, but I don't know. But it's less marketable, so I get it.
1: <laughs> well, I'm sure, because I, I want to bring it up because it's going to, when we start watching the TV series, it's going to come up.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: But there's a lot of really great bookish kind of TV series coming up.
0: Yeah, Catch-22, Good Omens... Is there anything else I'm forgetting?
1: Uh, then the second season of Castle Rock is based on Misery, Stephen King's novel.
0: That's interesting.
1: That's like a prequel to Misery. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have, like, I'm really excited about the second It.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, that's so happening. I'm
1: hoping, I mean, the first one was so much better than other Stephen King mm-hmm. manifestations. So I'm hoping that this is just as good.
0: Yeah, I'm excited for the, for the new It. I really liked uh, that movie. Um, you know, maybe when the new one drops, I'll post... Uh, if I can find it, we recorded an episode in the the previous... The, the pre-crisis version of this podcast. We did record an episode about it and the, the first movie. If I can find it, I might repost it on the feed.
1: I think people. also coming out now is the um, TV series... Nasparatu, which is based on the novel by Joe Hill, who is Stephen King's son.
0: We talked about that on this Um, podcast. You recommended that before.
1: Yeah. And I think what's interesting to kind of think about this whole world building, he has a part in his own book where he mentions the world built by his own father, which I think is a very interesting, provocative way to sort of tie sort of a familial kind of writing into like he joe hill writes a horror novel he references his father's novel Mm -hmm. you know so it's kind of interesting and i think that that series has gotten some um good vibes i haven't seen any of the episodes yet but i love the book a lot i think the book is fantastic
0: yeah it's also uh, coming up in our swamp thing read there's a story that feels like a precursor to no stray too because there's basically a cross country occult road trip that Swamp Thing and Constantine go on.
1: Oh, I can't wait for that.
0: Yeah, that's gonna be real good. <laughs> uh yeah, I guess is there is there anything else we gotta say?
1: I don't think so. I think we covered a lot.
0: Yeah, so uh Ivan Illich next episode and then Swamp Thing volume three after that. Uh spoiler, alert, stay tuned. Bye.